I want to begin by asking you a couple questions just to think, get you thinking a little bit. Have you ever found yourself in a place in life where you didn't want to be? Maybe you're like, yes, like right now, that's where I, I'm somewhere in life I didn't want to be. Maybe you've been there before and that has been your story or perhaps you feel that way now. Have you ever felt lost? Have you ever felt stuck? Have you ever felt forgotten? Did you ever wonder if just maybe the good days were behind you and now you just got to finish the race because there's nothing left but death and taxes, right? I mean, it's all behind you now. If you've ever felt any of those things, I, I hope that before we're done today, God will speak to your heart and we'll circle back to that at the end. I do want to say this before I get into the message. If you haven't heard the squeaking upstairs, we have done everything we can to quiet that steeple down, including removing the cross on the top and it's still loud. We're making plans just to take the whole thing down because when it's windier than this, it's unbearable and we, we do know it's there. So if you can drown that out, and be with us today. I'd appreciate uh, the ability to do that and not be distracted. I want to talk today. We're starting a new sermon series we began last week um, uh, on the Bible. We're talking about the Bible this year, or a, lot, a good portion of this year. You're like, well, don't we always talk about the Bible? Yes, but today we're talking about the Bible in the sense of um, just, you know, what, what's the story? What's the narrative arc of the Scriptures? And if you missed last week, you'd probably do yourself a favor to go to our website. There's a sermons or messages tab on our website. You could actually either choose to listen to it in podcast form on uh, Apple Podcasts, or you can watch the service if you want to on YouTube. It's all there through our website links. And I'd encourage you to go back to last week if you missed it to kind of catch you up to the foundation that we laid for the series that we're going to start on the Bible. Now, I did say a couple of things I want to remind you of, and that is this, that the word Bible, our Bibles today, though it comes from a Latin word, tabiblia, and it literally means the books. And we think of it as the book, and that's fine, nothing wrong with that, but sometimes it kind of makes us put everything in a big jumbled mess without context together. So it's wise to remember it as the books, because that's what it literally means, the books. And it's actually a collection of 66 different books contained inside, and really, when I say it's a collection of books, honestly, the Bible, as we said last week, it's, a, it's really two collections of books. It's two collections. It's, it's first, the first collection is what we call the Hebrew Scriptures, and the second collection is what we call the Christian Scriptures. Or we may have been raised to know them as the Old Testament and the New Testament. I like these terms better because it helps us think in context, maybe, and a little bit, maybe do better with our theology as we approach the Scriptures, which the church could always use more of that. But anyhow, the Hebrew Scriptures are 39 different writings or 39 different books that make up the, the history and the story. It's the story of a nation, of the Hebrew people. It's their story. It's their kings and their history. So it's 39 books, the Hebrew Scriptures. And then we have the Christian Scriptures. It's 27 books uh, that tell the story of Jesus and the early church and its correspondence and history. And, um, and they're both phenomenal. They put them both, both collections together. And we put it in one big binding, and we call it the Bible, the books altogether. We're going to be kind of going through this, and we're going to start with the Hebrew Scriptures first, because that's what comes first in our Bibles as they're laid out. So we're going to start there, because it's chronological to some degree, at least, that way. And um, the beginning of the Hebrew Scriptures starts with what is called the Pentateuch. Now, the word Pentateuch could be a few other terms also. Some people call it the Torah, 
or not just the Torah, but maybe the, um, the Torah, the uh, Pentateuch, the um, books of the law, the law of Moses. Those are all terms for these same five books, the Pentateuch. The books are Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And if, that, if, you, if those are names that are unfamiliar to you because you've not read through them or you've maybe heard them and don't know what their point is, over the next few weeks you're going to understand what they're all about because we're going to kind of you know, walk through them a little bit uh, and, and uh, see the narrative there. But um, you would think that if we're starting a journey through the Bible, the narrative arc of the Bible, you'd probably think that today we're going to start with Genesis chapter 1 because that's the beginning, right? Genesis is the first book of the Pentateuch. Therefore, the first book of the Hebrew Scriptures, therefore, the first book of the Bible. But we're not going to start in Genesis 1. We are going to start today in Exodus 1. And you're like, Arlen, why would you start in Exodus instead of Genesis? And the reason why is a very important character that we need to see early on. Very central character to, to the Hebrew people, to, to modern Jewish worshipers today, a very important character. And this character, this person, is going to be so instrumental in the writing of the Pentateuch. This person is instrumental in writing it, in making sure it was, it was copied and, and documented and preserved through time so it's still here for us today. And so to really appreciate the Pentateuch, we should start with this, this person and, because they had a role in giving, getting it to us in, you know, through God's, you know, God's leadership in their lives. And so we're going to tell their story today. And the story begins in Exodus 1, while the children of Israel, or the Hebrew people, were enslaved in Egypt. They were slaves in Egypt. Now, I'm going to use the term the Hebrews a lot today, the Hebrews or the Hebrew people. I want you to understand something. There's a lot of interchangeable terms there. The Hebrew people are also called the Jewish people, are also called the Israelites, sometimes the children of Israel back then. Again, all the same group of people, different terms. We'll use the term Hebrews a lot because we're using the Hebrew scriptures. The word Hebrews is used several times in these writings that we're in right now. The Israelites, it's the same group of people. And the Hebrew people find themselves in the beginning of Exodus. They find themselves as slaves in Egypt. Now, how do they end up as slaves? And I don't have time today to tell us the backstory of that. But here's the skinny on it, is that... Um, actually hundreds of years, like 400 years before today's story, at one point, one of their ancestors named Joseph was brought into Egypt through a series of interesting, a series of unfortunate events or fortunate events. He was brought into Egypt, and um, actually while he was there, he ended up becoming a national hero to the Egyptians, a savior of sorts because he was able to step in with his wisdom that God gave him and help them through what was going to be an economically devastating time to their economy. He's able to step in and save them from, from going in, in, into trouble. And actually, not only did they survive this bad economic time, but they were actually able to take advantage of the, ter of the, of, of the downtime to expand their empire because they were ready for it. And that was all because of Joseph's leadership. And so Joseph was a very big hero, a national savior of sorts to Egypt. And he brings along with him his, um, his family. They all moved to Egypt. They were shepherds by trade. And they, they moved to the land of Goshen in Egypt and began to watch cattle and also help with the royal uh, cattle and watch them as well. And everyone loved Joseph and his family because he was a savior and a hero to their nation. Well, the problem is, is that time marches on. 
Eventually, Joseph dies, his kids, their kids die, and generations pass, and you know, kings pass. The king of Egypt was called the Pharaoh. Pharaoh was not his first name, like Bill or Joe or Larry. Pharaoh was a title like King or Herod or Pharaoh. There were many different Pharaohs. Well, Pharaoh, he died, and another Pharaoh comes, and another Pharaoh comes, and time moves on. In fact, we see the story in Exodus chapter 1 and verse 8. It says, eventually, a new king came to power in Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph or what he had done. He knew nothing about that. Because again, we understand this if we're being honest. Many of us don't appreciate or know people who did good for our country or our lives 50 years ago because it was before our time. So things that were amazing 50 years ago, we may not even know about them or remember them or, or we forget them. And this is hundreds of years are passing by here, hundreds of years. And so at some point, Joseph is long forgotten by the nation. They've moved on. And this, this Pharaoh, this king, in verse 9, he said to his people, he said, look, the people of Israel, they now outnumber us and are stronger than we are. Really? That's what he said. Verse 10, he says, we must make a plan to keep them from growing even more. If we don't, and if war breaks out, they will join our enemies and they will fight against us and then they will escape from the country. Now, I want to call hyperbole on that, okay? I, I don't, I mean, I don't know what I wasn't there, but I doubt there was more. They were outnumbered because for, for one, they were, if, if the Israelites outnumbered them, then how were they so easily able to enslave them by force? So they probably didn't really outnumber the Egyptians, nor was it given that they were going to go join their enemies if war broke out. You know what that's called? That's called fear tactics. We understand that. We see that in today's culture. We see that in politics today on both sides of the aisle, including your side of the political aisle, by the way, that we see people play fear tactics of saying, oh, there's this people and there's so many people. They're all big and they're all bad. They're all a threat to you know, your, your preferred way of life. And we're so good at using fear to stir people up to either mobilize them for our, our power and control as, as people do or to, to manipulate the things. And fear is a great tactic. And Pharaoh says, oh, there's more of them than there are of us and they're gonna ruin our nation and take it from us. We gotta, we gotta turn against them and do something. And you got the people all riled up and fearful. And they decided they needed to enslave the Hebrews. In fact, verse 11 says this, so the Egyptians made the Israelites their slaves. And they put them into slave labor and this would go on for centuries. And as we read the story, what we find is that it strangely isn't working out. Maybe the Egyptians thought by enslaving these people, we'll subdue them and become more powerful than them. The crazy part is that the more they oppressed the Israelites, the more they kept multiplying and growing. It's like, what are they doing? You know, like we're enslaving them, making our lives easier, and they're getting off done with their slave labor, going home and making more babies. I mean, what in the world? Their families keep growing. It's crazy. We can't slow them down. And so they don't know what to do. And, and at some point, Pharaoh comes to the Hebrew midwives. There was two women who were the, known as the Hebrew midwives. And he said to them, look, your job is to run all over the place whenever there's a baby's about to be born and help the moms. There's two of you helping the moms give birth to the babies as midwives. That's what a midwife, if you don't know what a midwife is, I won't get into that. But he said, listen, ladies, here's the new instructions for you. And he's telling them under threat what they're supposed to do. When the baby's born to a Hebrew family. If it's a baby girl, wonderful, hand her to her mom. If it's a baby boy, kill him. 
Well, the midwives are like, I'm not going to do that. So they go off and they just keep delivering the babies. And at some point, Pharaoh realizes that baby boys are still running around, you know, or, or you know, being you know, nursed and are living. So he calls the midwives in and said, what are you doing? And they lied. They're like, oh, well, you know how it is. The Hebrew women, they're feisty. I mean, they're not like, you know, look at these people. They're just, you can't keep, they keep growing. We, we get called to help them deliver, and they're already done before we get there. It's just, we, we can't, we haven't had a chance to obey you yet, Pharaoh. <laughs> and so they get out of it, even though it was a threat against them. And God blessed them for doing so. But Pharaoh, in the meantime, Pharaoh decides to cut out the middle person. So he goes straight to the Hebrew families and says to every family, every couple, listen, listen carefully, husbands, wives, from now on, if you decide to get pregnant and have a baby, okay, that's fine. If you have a baby girl, you may keep her. Congratulations to you. If you have a baby boy, you're going to take him down to the Nile River and throw him in the water and, he, and let him die. That's brutal. And of course, they have the power. They have the power to enforce that. They have the power to, 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 take the, to kill a baby themselves or to kill a people for protecting a baby. There's just no, there's no win here. Instead, I don't have time to nerd out with archaeology today with so many of us, but if we were to look back and, and talk to me later in private, I'd love to talk about some of the archaeological discoveries of, of ancient Egyptian cities that were built by slaves and, and so many interesting fetches that, that verify the Exodus story, including a place where so many infants uh, uh, found grave markings for so many infants and babies that were killed in ancient times. Because the Hebrews had no choice. They were slaves. They were not free. And, they, and, and the baby boys were put to death. Well, along the way, a certain couple from the tribe of Levi, uh, let, me, let me tell you what the tribe of Levi means, these were the descendants of a man named Jacob. Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, had like 12 sons, big family. And each of their sons had their own descendants. And they became known as tribes. So one of Jacob's or Israel's sons, Levi, these kids were his descendants. So from the tribe of Levi, a husband and a wife, they got, they got married and then they had a family. And they had a daughter. And at the time of today's story, their daughter is eight years old. Their daughter is eight years old. Her name is Miriam. A few years later, they had a son. At the time of today's story, their son is three years old. His name is Aaron. And at the time of our story today, king, the king, Pharaoh, says, you got to start killing all the baby boys. And baby boys are being killed because of his orders. And this couple gets pregnant again, and they have their two children, and now they have another child, and sure enough, it's a boy. But they can't bear to throw him into the water, and they can't bear to kill him. So... Pharaoh, they hide, they hide them. And that's dangerous because they can get found out. But they try to hide him. They just, they're doing their best and taking their lives, maybe their lives. Definitely the baby's life, they'll be killed anyhow if he's found. And they might be killed and their kids would be parentless or maybe their kids would be killed or taken from them. I mean, they're in a terrible spot that we can't understand in modern times how terrible of a spot they were in and how much they were risking to their entire family unit to protect this newborn baby boy they weren't supposed to keep. But they hid him. For three whole months, they hid him. And as the days ticked on and the weeks ticked on and the months ticked on, they began to have conversations that said, we can't hide him any longer. We can't keep him safe any longer. We're, we're risking our entire family. We, we can't do it. So the sad day came when in the morning, the mom got up and she had prepared a basket. She made it waterproof and by how she pitched it and treated it, a little arc, like a little arc. And she put things in it to keep it comfortable as she could and she laid her baby boy in this basket. 
And she takes her, her daughter, her eight-year-old daughter, down with her to the water. And she lays this basket with the baby boy into the Nile River in a section where there's a lot of reeds growing up out of the water. She lays him among the reeds so he'll kind of stay there and not just drift because the reeds will kind of keep him in the area. And she just looks at him and she, she leaves him there. She, she can't bear to stay. Maybe she had to go back to work. Maybe she just couldn't bear to stop and see what would happen. She had done all she could do. But now she was risking all of her kids and all of her family. She leaves him there saying, I hit him as long as I could and now it's out of my hands. Maybe, he, maybe the, the basket won't float for long and he'll drown. Maybe a wild animal will get him. Maybe he'll die of the elements eventually or exposure or, or whatever, hunger. Or maybe God will intervene. But either way, I can't do any more than I've done and I gotta leave him there. And she walks away. I know we can't imagine such a thing because we've never been in that situation, but this is what was happening. And she leaves, but the little girl, the baby's older sister, she can't bear to leave. So mom goes back, and the sister, she stays nearby and hides, and she watches to see what's going to happen because she's worried about her little baby brother. Well, we pick up the story in Exodus chapter 2, in verse 5, it says, Soon, soon Pharaoh's daughter came down to bathe in the river, and her attendants walked along the riverbank. When the princess saw the basket among the reeds, she sent her maid to get it for her. When the princess opened it, she saw the baby. The little boy was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This must be one of the Hebrew children, she said. Then the baby's sister approached the princess should I go and find one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? You know, just one of the women. I don't know, some random Hebrew woman. Should I go find a nurse for the baby? Yes, do, the princess replied. So the girl went and called the baby's mother. Take this baby and nurse him for me, the princess told the baby's mother. I will pay you for your help. So the woman took her baby home and nursed him. And at a time when she had to walk away and think that she'd never see him again and not know what happened, she got to, to get called back and not only have him longer, but have him all the way until he was nursed and fully weaned. And not have to hide him anymore while doing so because she was under Pharaoh's daughter's orders to, to do so. So she could do it openly and, and enjoy these extra months with her baby and get paid to do it. And know that he would not end up like the rest of the family as a slave someday, but would get the privilege of growing up in the luxury of Pharaoh's palace and family in, his, in the princess's home. It couldn't have been better than when she walked away thinking, I don't know what's going to happen to him. Verse number 10, later, when the boy was older, his mother brought him back to Pharaoh's daughter who adopted him as her own son, the princess named him Moses, for she explained, I lifted him out of the water. So she named him Moses. Now, before we move on with the story, I just want to quickly pause, and I know that for some of us, it's hard in our modern-day sensibilities with the lives that we've known to picture a mom even having to put her baby in that situation and walking away, although record shows that most other people didn't even try that hard. She went above and beyond, but to walk away, we can't fathom that because we don't know what it's like. Although it's interesting that about history, how many stories you can read, even in recent times, of people in parts of the world who are so desperate or maybe so poverty-stricken that they've thrown their children into the babies into the river somewhere or something because they couldn't care for them. It's not an uncommon tale, unfortunately. And this mom had no choice in her condition as a slave people but to do what she had to do. 
but before we are judging her from a distance that we can't understand, she probably judged herself, like, how could I, what could I do? Could I have done something more? Did I fail as a mother? I feel so horrible. How does she feel in this moment? But I want you to know that while, while we may or she may even find some self-condemnation in walking away in that moment, that's not the lens that God saw them through. 1,500 years later, after the time of Jesus Christ, a book was written that's included in our Christian scriptures called the book of Hebrews for the Hebrew people. It's really written to a, written to a Jewish audience. The book of Hebrews talks about people who were known for having incredible faith. In fact, there's a whole chapter about people in their ancient history who were people of incredible faith. We call that chapter the Great Hall of Faith. And in that chapter, these parents are mentioned. It says this in Hebrews 11.23, It was by faith that Moses' parents hid him for three months when he was born. They saw that God had given them an unusual child, and they were not afraid to disobey the king's command. That's 1,500 years later. Now, here's what I want you to hear from the story. No matter how they felt about the moment when they couldn't do any more and just said, God, I hope he's in your hands, but he's out of mine, and does that feel bad? Do I feel like, was that, was that a mistake? Did God intervene? Yes, he did. But whatever we think about that or they felt about that, when we look back in their story, God says, I noticed the three months that they took their life into their own hands day upon day upon day upon night upon night upon night and kept the baby safe for three whole months. I'm not just looking at the moment when they walked away. I'm looking at the, all the time, day upon day, that they did the right thing, though it was dangerous and though it was hard. And by faith, that's how they operated for those three months. And I want to say this today. If you're the kind of person who struggles with seeing you struggle because your failures could discourage you and your bad moments weigh you down. Perhaps you're not that way. Perhaps you're the kind of person that thinks everything you do is wonderful. You forget that you ever make mistakes and you're amazing in your own story. If that's how awesome you are in your own eyes, I don't, this is not the sermon for you. You need Jesus to help you with that one, okay? But if you're like many of us and you're real good at just saying, oh, I, I struggle and I fail and I just I feel so worthless sometimes and I, let, I, I didn't measure up here. I want to point out to you from reading that story 1,500 years later that it's possible that God sees all those times, day in and day out and day in and day out, when you were faithful and we did the right thing without fanfare, without notice, and you think it doesn't count because of your bad moments, but God sees all the times that you trusted him and did the right thing. And he says, I, I admire the faith it takes to do that in this life. Anyhow, back to our story. Moses is going to grow up in Pharaoh's house. And the story takes place that Moses eventually grows up to be, at the time of the next part of our story, he's a 40-year-old man. Now, when I say 40-year-old man, you say, oh, middle-aged. That's fine. But I want you to think about that people's lifespan was a little bit different in those days. Moses would live to be 120 years old before he dies. And when I say he lived to be 120, he lived to be a healthy 120 before he died. And so lifespan was a little longer for a lot of people as you read this time of, of, of the world way back in the day. So for Moses to be 40 with a lifespan of 120 would be kind of like somebody who lives to be 75 today on the average at the age of 25. Does that make sense? Because they're being 25 years old instead of 40 in that same percentage gap. 
Or some of those would be 90, be like being 30. Either way, Moses is a young man. And he's grown up in Pharaoh's house. He's grown up in the princess's house. He's lived a good life. But at some point along the way, he figures out who his people are. I don't know how. Perhaps the princess told him all his life who his people were. Maybe he even saw them sometimes. I don't know. Maybe he was never told until he was a teenager or a young adult. Hey, Moses, there's something different about you if you didn't notice. We're not your family. Your family is the Hebrew slaves. And, and Moses, perhaps as a teen or a young adult, does what so many teens or young adults do when someone drops the, the news on them that they have a different family, that he wants to go find out who his family is. He wants to go figure out who they are. And so along the way in his adulthood, you see him getting to know his parents and his sibling, his sister and his brother and his people. In fact, we pick up the story in Exodus 2, verse 11. It says, many years later, when Moses had grown up, he went out to visit his own people, the Hebrews, and he saw how hard they were forced to work. During his visit, he saw an Egyptian beating one of his fellow Hebrews. And Moses, as you're going to see today a little bit, he can't stand for people oppressing other people and bullying other people, he hates a bully. He hates an oppressor. So Moses steps up to the plate in verse number 12 after looking in all directions to make sure that no one was watching. Moses killed the Egyptian, wow, and hid the body in the sand. Like that's, that, that escalated quickly. He kills the Egyptian and hides the body. Like no one's watching. Hey, knock it off. And he kills the guy and buries his body. And maybe Moses is thinking, hey, I'm gonna help my people. I'm going to start stepping in and kind of being, I'm, I'm Batman, you know. I'm going to step in the, and I'm going to put on my cape and I'm going to come and help my people. I'm going to deliver them from hardship. I'm going to deliver them. I'll be a savior to them because I have a position of privilege, probably a position that the Egyptians could not understand. Like, Moses, why would you? We all know in culture how it's like to be so unkind in our world to people that we think uh, they, that are oppressed in the world and people who, who, who are, come from a place of privilege but identify with oppressed people and stand up for them in, in some kind of a protest. And we're like, you shouldn't do that. You were raised with a good life and you had everything handed to you. You can't have nothing to complain about. That was Moses. Moses was given a good life. He had nothing to complain about. He wasn't a Hebrew slave. Why was he gonna sit there and take his privilege and over here identify with the slaves? But Moses did. Moses did that, though the Egyptians would not understand or appreciate that and would criticize that and stand against it. And though even his own people wouldn't necessarily identify with him, he said, I'm going to stand up for the oppressed people, even from my place of privilege. And so Moses is doing this, and he stands up and he kills this Egyptian, thinking, I'm going to deliver them, I'm going to help them, I'm going to use my, my, my power to be a savior to them. But it doesn't always go the way we hope it will go. So the, ne the very next day, the story continues, verse 13. The next day, when Moses went out to visit his people again, he saw two Hebrew men fighting. Why are you beating up your friend, Moses said to the one who had started the fight. So Moses is going to see this fight. He's going to call out again the bully, the one who started the fight. Hey, why are you fighting with this guy? Why are you fighting with him, right? And and Moses, I don't know what he's thinking, but do you know how people usually respond when they're so angry that they're fighting with somebody? Don't they love it when someone calls them out? Isn't that always a good moment when you're in the middle of a fight and someone inter inter intercedes? So this guy does not respond well to Moses' quote-unquote help. In verse 14, the man replied, who appointed you to be a judge, our judge and our prince? 
Are you going to kill me like you killed the Egyptian yesterday? Then Moses was afraid, thinking, everyone knows what I did. It's okay, everybody. Everyone's looking at the phone ringing. It's okay. It's all good. Um, my policy is if the phone rings in church, I get a free pizza, so I'll take a, a, a Aurelio's. Thank you very much. But uh, everyone give me attention back here. That's awesome. I love it when phones go off in church. Okay. Um, no, but hear, hear, hear me out. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm trying to talk you all like turning. Um, Moses is afraid. Moses is afraid. He's, he's thinking, I thought I helped him out. I thought they'd appreciate my help. And instead, they ratted me out. I thought there was no witnesses. Oh, there was one witness, the guy I saved. Thanks a lot for telling everybody. And he's like, I'm in trouble because the word is out there. So what does Moses do? Well, it says that Moses, he was, he was, he's got to get out of town. Verse 15, when sure enough, sure enough, when Pharaoh heard what had happened, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in the land of Midian. Now, this is interesting because Moses is running for his life. He's no longer living there. He is now far from home. He is a fugitive. He is, a, he is in exile from the palace of Egypt to being the hero to, whoops, that wasn't very, didn't go very well, to running for his life and living where there's no family, nobody he knows. How's he going to survive? Will they find him? He's living in Midian. That didn't turn out so well. Now, before I move on, I want you to go back to that. Remember I told you earlier that 1,500 years after the story, a book was written in our Christian scriptures called the book of Hebrews that talks about people of great faith, the hall of faith. It also has commentary in it about Moses. It says this in Hebrews eleven twenty four: It was by faith that Moses, when he grew up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to share the oppression of God's people instead of enjoying the fleeting pleasures of sin. And I want to point this out to you, all of us, teenagers especially, but not just teenagers, adults, we should, hopefully we've learned this, but if we haven't, please hear me. Sin does offer pleasure, but it's always fleeting. It's always fleeting. At some point, sin's pleasures come to an end, and then sin, when it's finished, the scriptures say, it brings forth death. It brings forth consequence. It brings forth hardship and loss. It's never worth it in the end, although in the moment it sure is enticing. But what was the sin that Moses chose to share oppression instead of enjoying the pleasures of sin? What sin was he avoiding? It was the ple because it's easy to just make that verse be whatever cultural rant we want it to be about, right? Pleasures of sin. What was the sin here? The sin would have been living the high life in Egypt at the expense of the mistreatment of the slaves in Egypt. While people are being oppressed to make my life better and mistreated so that I can, do, I can, I can fare better at their expense. That was the sin of Egypt in mistreating the slaves. And Moses said, I would rather suffer with them and be oppressed than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin because at some point there will be a reconciling for treating people wrong and sinning against people. In fact, he goes on to say in verse 26, he thought it was better to suffer for the sake of Christ than to own the treasures of Egypt for he was looking ahead to his great reward. He said, I could have all the stuff now the wrong way 
or I can take a hard life and do the right thing now and trust that in the end, God will make it all right. If I will do what's right, God will take care of it in the long run. Verse 27, it was by faith that Moses left the land of Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He kept right on going because he kept his eyes on the one who is invisible. How do you see someone who's invisible? How do you see them? They're invisible. But that's what, that's called faith. Faith is able to look beyond and see the one who we can't see with our eyes. Moses said, I'm not looking at the king of Egypt. I'm not looking at the opportunities of my own personal wealth and the mistreatment of other people. I'm not looking at fear. I'm looking at God. And I believe through faith that he has me. And I'm going to keep my eyes on the one who's invisible. That's a good lesson for all of us today. We would all be better off in our lives if we lived our lives not mindful of our earthly circumstances, opportunities, or fears, but lived our life with our eyes on the one who is invisible. Eyes of faith. Anyhow, the story goes that Moses, at some point, comes to a well of water. He comes to a well of water in the land of Midian, and he just rests there. He just sits down and, and he draws some water, maybe gets a drink. Maybe he's going to sit there for a while, get another drink, because you've got to get your 64 ounces of water a day, right? So he's going to sit down and drink some water. While he's there, shepherds begin to show up to the well to water their flocks of sheep. And as the shepherds begin to arrive, he notices that one group of shepherds is all women. A bunch of girl, of young women who are working together to watch sheep. And he sees that as these girls arrive with their sheep, the other shepherds begin to mistreat and bully them. Not going to let them, you, you, you wait last, girls. You're not, you're just, you just wait last. They picked on them. Maybe they were just being mean guys, like guys can be to girls sometimes. They're just like over here saying, um, no, and, and Moses is sitting there watching this happen. And if you know the story, Moses is not putting up with people getting mistreated. He's having none of that. So that's why he killed the Egyptian. That's why he interceded before. He can't take it. He jumps up and he gets in the way. He says, leave these girls alone. And he defends them. And the other shepherds finally back off. They find, and maybe they say some insulting things, but they back off. And Moses brings the girls to the front of the well, helps them also draw their water at the same time that others did theirs and get their water to their sheep. And he helps them water their flocks and watches over them and sends them home safely. And when the girls get home, they go to see their father, who was, was the priest of Midian. I don't know what religion that was at the time, but the priest of Midian. So he was a, a religious leader, a religious figure, which kind of means that these girls were preacher's kids. Not really preachers, but you know what I'm saying. They were like, their dad was the priest of Midian. And so they, they come home, and the dad's like, where'd you come from so quickly? It takes you longer than this to get your, get your water. And they're like, Dad, you couldn't believe it. This, this guy was there, and he, he stood up for us when the, when the shepherds were giving us a hard time again and helped us, and, and we owe it to him. And the dad's like, well, why didn't you bring him home with you? Where's he from? Does he need help? So they go back, and they find Moses. They bring him in, and the dad thanks him. He feeds him a meal, gives him a place to sleep that night. And then he says, hey, do you need a job? I could sure use you here. And Moses becomes a shepherd. And that's interesting because Moses is the descendant hundreds of years earlier of the ancestors of Israel that first came to Egypt. Guess what they all were? They were all shepherds. That was their history as a family, was being shepherds. And Moses was never a shepherd. He was raised in the palace of Egypt. But now he's in the exile, and he becomes a shepherd himself, and God's going to teach him lessons of life through shepherding the flock. Much like he would do David later on. And so Moses is watching the sheep, and he settles down there. 
he actually marries one of this guy's, this man's daughters. And they have a family, they have children. And time passes by. Can I tell you how much time passes by? The next part of our story starts when Moses is now 80 years old. Now, 80 sounds pretty old, not to some of us perhaps, but to, but, but to most of us. But I want to remind you that Moses lives to be 120 years old. And you know what that means? That means that Moses is only two thirds. In other words, being 80 when you live to be 120 is kind of like if you're going to live to 75, you're only 50. Or if you're going to live to be 90, you're 60. It's still down the road a ways. And Moses has, has been half of his life in Egypt as a, the princess's son, living the high life. And he makes one big decision to step up and do the right thing and be a deliverer and a hero. And now he's at the second half of his life in the wilderness as a shepherd, wondering what life would have been like if he had done things a little differently. Did he make a mistake? Was it the right move? Did it, should, I have done it, should I have done it a different way? Would it have turned out differently if I had gone about it a different way? At some point, you kind of look back, we all look back in those like signature moments of our life that changed everything about our trajectory. And Moses is like, what, what, what might have been? Now I'm just a shepherd for the second half of his life at that point. Years passed by, Exodus 2.23, years passed, and the king of Egypt died, but the Israelites continued to groan under their burden of slavery. They cried out for help, and their cry rose up to God. God heard their groaning. He remembered his covenant promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he looked down on the people of Israel and knew that it was time to act. God said, I know it's time now. It's time to step in. The time is right. At the right time, God stepped in. How does he do it? Well, Exodus 3 tells us the story. One day, Moses was tending the flock of his father Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led the flock into the, far into the wilderness and came to Sinai, the mountain of God, also called Mount Horeb, by the way, Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb, there the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the middle of a bush. Moses stared in amazement. Though the bush was engulfed in flames, it did not burn up. This is amazing, Moses said to himself. Why isn't that bush burning up? I must go see it. When the Lord saw Moses coming to take a closer look, God called to him from the middle of the bush, Moses, Moses, here I am, Moses replied. Like, what's that? Do not come any closer, the Lord warned. Take off your sandals, for you are standing on holy ground. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. When Moses heard this, he covered his face because he was afraid to look at God. Moses had been raised in Egypt in Pharaoh's house where the Egyptians had a whole pantheon of gods. Gods of darkness, gods of light, gods of the Nile River, gods of the crops. I mean, they had a whole pantheon of gods. And Moses knew that the Hebrew people worshipped this one God creator of all, but he wasn't raised in that environment. And now he's in the wilderness all his, these decades later, and God says, I'm the God of your people. I'm him. And God explains to Moses, I am calling you to go back to Egypt and be a deliverer. Deliver my people from slavery. Go tell Pharaoh that the Lord says to let his people go into the wilderness to serve him. Just tell them that you're going to take a three-day trip into the wilderness to serve me and sacrifice to me, but then just don't come back. Just take them gone. 
Moses is like, God, I don't know that he's going to go for that. In fact, what happens next is Moses and God go through a two chapters of Scripture arguing back and forth. Moses is like, I don't think it's going to work. God's like, it'll work. I don't think it's a good idea. Who do I tell them that you are? What's your name? God says, tell them that I am that I am. Tell them that I am sent you. Tell them that my name is Yahweh, the God of, your, of, your, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that I'm their deliverer. Tell them to, 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 um, to, to trust me. I'm going to take them out of there. And Moses argues. Moses is like, it won't, they won't believe me. God says, Moses, what's that in your hand? What's my, it's my shepherd's staff. Throw it on the ground, Moses. Okay, fine. It turns into a snake, and Moses like runs away. Whoa. And God says, Moses, pick up the snake by the tail. And right that, at that moment, I'd have been done. But Moses says, okay, fine. Picks up the snake by the tail, turns back into a rod. God's like, show them that. Gives them a couple different signs and miracles like that. Says, go show the people. They'll believe you. It's not going to be easy, but we're going to get them set free. You're the deliverer. I'm going to use Moses. And Moses keeps arguing. In fact, I want you to see part of the argument here real quick. In Exodus 4, verse 10, Moses pleaded with the Lord, oh, Lord, I'm not very good with words. I never have been. I'm not now. And even though you have spoken to me, I get tongue-tied and my words get tangled. Then the Lord asked Moses, who makes a person's mouth? Who decides whether people speak or do not speak? Hear or do not hear? See or do not see? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go. I'll be with you as you speak and I will instruct you in what to say. But, but, but Moses is not done yet. Moses again pleaded, Lord, please send anyone else. Then the Lord became angry with Moses. All right, he said, what about your brother Aaron, the Levite? I know he speaks well, and look, he's on his way to meet you now. He'll be delighted to see you. Talk to him, put the words in his mouth. I'll be with both of you as you speak. I'll instruct you both in what to do. Aaron will be your spokesman to the people. He'll be your mouthpiece, and you'll stand in the place of God for him, telling him what to say. This version of Moses, people, this version of Moses is very different than the younger, less hairy Moses, okay? Yeah, he's less hairy. Not big. Um, Moses, as a younger man, he's like, I shall save the people. I'll kill the Egyptian and his body and say, hey, guys, let me help you here. Don't fight with each other. Moses, the young man, was ready to deliver. I can do it. Moses, the old man's like, I can't do it. No way, Jose. Send someone else. God, I'm going to argue with you over and over again until you get mad at me. What happened? Moses was at one time a young man like many of us were young once. And so full of zeal when we're young. We, th we think we know it all. We've got it all figured out. Our thinking is right and we have opinions about people and everything. And we, 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 we feel invincible and I could do it all and I'm zealous. But then Moses had, re had life hit him upside the head. Moses had disappointment come. Moses had perceived failure come. Moses had life throw some curveballs. Now he's not a royal person in Pharaoh's house anymore trying to do a good thing. Now he's a shepherd hiding in Midian watching a bunch of sheep for his father-in-law. Decades have passed. He's not so young anymore. And Moses does not have the, co the confidence and the zeal and, and, and surety of himself that he had as a young man. Before he'd say, let's do it, let's do it. And now he's like, uh-uh, God, I can't do it. Maybe he was wiser. Maybe he was just older. Maybe he was more jaded. Maybe he was humble. But he didn't believe he could do it anymore. And maybe that's exactly why God now felt like Moses was finally ready. 
I love it that 1,500 years later in the Christian scriptures, God is known to say in 2 Corinthians 12, he says, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. When you think you got the muscle for yourself, you got this, you don't need God, I could do it. But sometimes we get to a spot where we're like, God, I don't have the strength to do it. God's like, good, that's when my power works best. Now I can do something through you, in you, and with you. So sure enough, we'll wrap up with this verse. Moses and Aaron returned to Egypt and they called the elders of Israel together. Aaron told them everything the Lord had told Moses and Moses performed all the miraculous signs as they watched. Then the people of Israel were convinced that the Lord had sent Moses and Aaron. When they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshiped. And the very next day, they all left Egypt and lived happily ever after the end. Wrong-o. Wrong-o. It gets really bad from here, but we're out of time. So I'll tell you what happens next week. Believe me, it's an adventure. It's a bloody story. But you gotta wait for next week. What I want to say today as I read this, I want to wrap up with a quick, a simple thought. As we read the story of Moses and we see the young Moses saying, let me be a deliverer. Let me step in. And then losing everything and finding himself decades later saying, what has this been? And looking back as an older man saying, I can't do it. I can't do it anymore. Probably along the way, wondering if he was forgotten. I asked you earlier, have you ever felt forgotten? Moses probably felt forgotten out there in the wilderness until that burning bush showed up. Moses probably felt lost. Moses probably felt stuck. Moses probably thought my, my opportunities of life are long gone. I thought I had some dreams. They didn't work out. They're all behind me now. I'm just waiting until it's over, raising my family and my father-in-law's flocks. But God knew where he was and God knew what was going on. And God was in control of the situation, even though Moses maybe couldn't see what was happening and maybe over time had lost his confidence or heart that anything could change. And that's when God felt like the time was right. And I don't know who needs to hear this today. I've learned as a pastor that sometimes I can speak a truth into church and I can think in my brain that I know what truth God wants you to hear, but I've learned that the Holy Spirit is really good at taking the truth that you need to hear to your heart, even if it's nothing, nothing that I say at all. But at the same time, I do want to say something to you that God's put on my heart in case you need to hear this today. And if you're struggling at all, if you can relate to Moses' story at all, if you're in a spot in life where you're like, I don't know where I am or what's going on, I want to say quick, three quick statements to you and we'll go home. The first one is this, God knows where you are. Listen carefully to me today. God knows where you are. He knows where you are. You might not know where he is for sure or what's going on, but God knows where you are. Number two, God knows what you need. It may be like Moses, a time of cooling down, a time of learning what you, don't, what you didn't know you didn't know a time of realigning our, 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 our confidence to him or preparing us in a way through other means like watching sheep. But God knows where you are and God knows what you need. And number three, I wanna say this, God knows when it's time. His time's not always our time, but he has a time and we can trust him. And this is what Christianity's all about. It's a life of faith. As you read the, the stories of the people of the hall of faith, Faith is saying, God, I trust you when I don't see you. I'm gonna live with eyes of faith as seeing him who is invisible. 
And even though I don't always know what's up, I know that you know where I am, you know what I need, you know when it's time, I'm gonna trust you. And if we can do that today, I believe that we can see God glorified in our lives as we trust him. And I hope you will today.